Hello and welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green and I'm your host. Thank you for being along today, July the 4th, 2021. It's uh, <clears throat> been a busy week for us. We've had a lot going on and uh, done a lot of fun things. Went out and uh, took some hikes, went out into the woods, which is favorite place to be. So got some good news this week. We're still waiting for confirmation to get the final word on it. But uh, my son, Will, the one who fell and cracked his skull, had to have two pieces of it removed and uh, was in a coma for about five weeks and, and has made a remarkable recovery. And in fact, the neurosurgeon this week on Thursday when we met with him said, you made a miraculous recovery. I mean, he used that word or that term three different times in the course of that conversation. He he was startled. I mean, he, in the beginning, he told me, I have no earthly idea what will happen. I, I don't expect him necessarily to live through the night. Uh, if he does, we'll probably have to go back in and do more. And, and, and I don't have any idea what his prognosis is, what it would look like, but it's not good. And then along the way, you know, we had conversations and, and he was never sure and, and you know, in neuro stuff, it's really hard to, and cause he explained all the damage and how it went and everything, and, and said just unlikely to make a recovery from this. Um, we had uh, a nurse ask one day, you know, would you um, have you thought about would he want to live if he's not able to do X, Y, and Z? And we said, well, we just don't know that, do we? And, and I wouldn't have done anything anyway. Um, he's my son. I love him. I'm not putting him to death just because he lacked the ability to do something. It was just felt like an odd question or yeah an odd question but I, you know I kind of get it at some level along the way they're preparing me for a worst case scenario and the thing that everybody expected and so it's it's been a remarkable thing that's happened and so we met with the neurosurgeon on Thursday and, and tentatively the schedule the surgery to replace the two missing skull flaps the pieces of skull they had to remove to relieve the pressure is scheduled for um this month, three weeks from today, three well, three weeks from the day I'm taping this, which is Friday the second. Um, so on the 23rd, so it'd probably be in the hospital over the weekend, and then come home on Monday, and, and expects to be able to resume complete normal activities by uh, six weeks later. It's just it's just an amazing thing to watch what God's done, and, and to see Him do this. And I'm thinking about this along the way uh, to. In, in in preparing for today's sermon for multiple reasons and, and um, not the least of which is that what it what the gospel points to today is the sort of the doubtfulness and the rejection of Jesus and what I want to talk about is the faith necessary to to persevere through your questions and and that's the important thing is to keep things in order and to keep there our, that our our questions when we have questions and doubts that we keep those in perspective. And we submit those to the Lord. And so we all in this Christian walk have reason for doubt. But there's a but but if we persevere and we step forward in faith and continue to put one foot in front of the other in that same faith, then ultimately it will be rewarded. It may not look good today, but we need not always allow that to discourage us. If if that had been the case, then our founding fathers would never have gotten to July the fourth, which would never have gotten us through the the entire war to become a, a sovereign country. But they were committed to the principles that were laid out in the Declaration of Independence and ultimately in the Constitution of the United States. And, and those things were the forces that drove them. And, and they're all based in a, a belief in a creator God and, and that we are all created in its image because it says all men are created equal, and which would indicate that they, their belief was that that all men were the same in the eyes of God 
that we were all created in God's image and equally valuable before the Lord. Now, they didn't live that out in practice. I mean, there's no question that that's true, that, that many of them were slaveholders and um, continued to, to be slaveholders for a long time. But what they believed in was an ideal. And they believed in an ideal that had been passed down from the time the first pilgrims came over on the Mayflower, and, and that was that this was to be a city set on a hill. Now, are we persevering in that? Same thing. I, you know, I don't think you could look at America today and say that, that we are good in the eyes of God. We're, we're baptizing sin. We're baptizing it and celebrating it. And um, it, it's, we have lost our minds collectively going down this road of, of the gender silliness that we're dealing with right now. Um, and and I, I just believe, though, that if we as a nation do exactly what... what um, Solomon called for, which is a repentance, a recognition and a confession of our sins. And then if we humble ourselves before the Lord, then he'll restore us. And so it, it, we've got to persevere as the church in being those who confess those sins. We, we need not run away from sins like slavery and things like that. We need to confess those things and confess that we were wrong about those things. But, but we need not continue to um, flog ourselves over those things and, and let ourselves be divided among any sort of lines, whether it's uh, racial or sexual or, or whatever, because that's exactly what Paul speaks about over and over again. And he's got to tell the church that. And the, the Jewish part of the church, the early church, needed it as much as the Gentile part of the church because there's a, there was a tendency to make the Gentile converts to Christianity sort of second-class citizens along the way. And so Paul fought the battle for Gentile inclusion. He, he fought the battle over that. And remember the reason for the first deacons actually had to do with the, the uh, Hellenized, the, the Greek speaking, the Greek people who were primarily Greek in orientation rather than Jewish in their orientation were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food in the early church. And so they raised up deacons to oversee that function to make sure that everybody got the same thing or got, got an equal amount at least. And so, but, but the reality is, is that leaders as well as um, people who, are, who don't seem to be in traditional leadership roles, although we're all leaders in the kingdom at some level because somebody's looking up to you to know what a Christian looks like. And so we're all leaders at some level. And so we're all going to have times when we could get discouraged, when we're going to be rejected, when people are going to turn their backs on us. And that's the sort of the commonality in all three of these lessons today. The Old Testament lesson doesn't look like it, though, because what happens there is in 2 Samuel 5, 1 to 5, and 9 to 10, and the omitted portions are basically the conquest of the Jebusites in Jerusalem. And there's some information in there that, um, that David wouldn't allow, uh, for instance, people who were handicapped into the city. Um, I don't, I'm not quite sure why we skip over it, because the reality is, is that later <laughs> David will bring up Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, who's, um, who, who, when he was young, young was being carried from um, the, the battle area. Uh, by his nurse who was fleeing, and she dropped him, and, and he was lame for the rest of his life. Well, well, David brought Mephibosheth into his household as a part of his household and fed him from the king's table day after day. And so, it, it's, it, yes, David said these things, but there was a reason for it. If you go back and read those few verses that are left out, but anyway. The, it, but it, there, So there's this odd sort of um, move in the, in the first lesson where suddenly he, he's at Jerusalem, um, reigning rather than in um, Judah, which is where he had been before. So <clears throat> what we see in this one is is that we don't see that whole rejection motif in there. 
um, what we see is David being made king. Um, David had already been made king once. He was made king in 2 Samuel 2, actually, but he was made king only over Judah. And uh, the rest of the tribes were were following under Saul's son Ishbosheth. Remember, at the end of 1 Samuel, at the book of 1 Samuel, what you got is is that Saul and Jonathan, who would have been the natural heir presumptive to Saul's throne, were both uh, killed in battle with the Philistines. And so now there, there there has to be somebody from the house of Saul to claim the throne of Saul, and so that becomes Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth. Uh, receives that claim and he reigns for two years and during that two years there the, basically the the entire focus of everything is a civil war between the tribe of Judah who is led by David and the all the other tribes who are led by Ishbosheth the son of Saul and so finally defeat comes largely because Ishbosheth um, accused his uh, the, the commander of his army, whose name was Abner, accused Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, and and he was in, he Abner proclaimed his innocence and then turned on him. He turned on Ishbosheth, and so after that things tumbled and fell apart. But but prior to this, David had been rejected as king over over the tribes of uh, Israel itself, only over Judah, and so David had been he had been rejected by these others. His claim to the throne after Saul died. And then he had been um, hunted like a dog, first for seven years by Saul, and then a couple of years by his son Ishbosheth. And so the, the, the armies battled back and forth, in spite of the fact that it's one um, tribe against 11 tribes. And so then we, we come up, and now, after the death of Ishbosheth, uh, the tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron and say, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. So they're recognizing the truth retrospectively. They're, they're recognizing the truth that, that people actually followed David, that he was the one who led them out, not Saul, even though Saul was the king. David was the true leader. That's their um, confession here that they make before him when they come to David and ask him to be their king now. He'd, he'd been their leader before. He had been their commander. He was the one they truly followed is what they're saying. And so now they, they'd like to submit themselves to him as their king, as his, to him as their king. And so the Lord said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, which is where David had his throne when he was king over Judah. Uh, according to God's command to go to Hebron, actually. And King David made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So David ascended to the throne of Saul. He is, it, the, the kingdom was now reunited, and, and they're reunited under David's headship. And David had been willing to accept this role. He had been anointed by Samuel many years before at this point, and yet here he is on, on the run and hunted for so long. And now finally, the fulfillment of God's promise many years later has, has come to pass, and David will rule uh, for seven years and six months at Hebron, and then at Jerusalem he's going to reign over all Israel and Judah for the next 33 years. And he lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. Now the city of David is Bethlehem because it's the city of where David was born. And, and so this, But the city of David is what we know as Jerusalem, but that's David's calling it the city of David. And, and so then it become, he becomes greater and greater over a period of time because the Lord of the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. 
And so David ascended not only to the throne, he ascended before God as well. He ascended higher and higher in the Lord because the Lord was with him this entire time. And he was following the Lord, but not completely, right? I mean, David fails several times in his leadership. But one of the things that, that's the hallmark of David's leadership was his graciousness towards the house of Saul and the gracious, graciousness towards some of those who oppose him in his life. Um, what you see with David raising up Mephibosheth is he could have said, no, you got to put to death all the house of Saul. But he loved David, and he loved Saul, and he recognized that Saul had been anointed by God, and therefore David was never going to step away from him. And, and so when the word comes to David that, that Saul and Jonathan have been killed, what does he do? He puts the messenger to death because he knows that, that you, you killed him because you told me you killed him. And then there are multiple other times in David's kingship where, where he forgoes revenge for the sake of unity. He puts all those things in abeyance. Now, now when he raises up Solomon on his deathbed, he, he tells him, go get him, boy. But David's a man of war. It's who David is. It's who he had to be. He didn't have any choice but to be a man of war because whether it was civil war or, or external, then David was constantly engaged in war um, because he had to, to protect this, this nascent kingdom, this nascent nation. And, and so that's the, the issue with David is this the reason he can't build a temple is because he had to be a man of war. But, but that war is ultimately what brought peace. And so it was important to do that. But David knew what it was like to be rejected by the people, and he'll know what it's like another time in his life as well. He, he has known this rejection by his people when, when they set out to stone him, actually, when they were at Ziklag, um, because their, their wives and their children had been taken away and the city burned. And so David knew what it was to be rejected, but David was in it for the long haul. David knew the truth. He knew what God had done. God had anointed him king over Israel, and so he stayed in the game. He didn't duck out and get discouraged and quit. And, and that's Paul in, in this 2 Corinthians 12, 2 to 10 passage. What, what, he's, what, what it is is a continuation of his own uh, apologetic for his apostleship. And, and, and it's, it's, he's saying, you should listen to me for these reasons. And, and the reason he's having to say that is these others have come that, that are considered super apostles. Literally, that's the word he uses. Um, and, and they have set themselves over against Saul, their authority. And, and the people in Corinth have, have lifted these people up in opposition to Paul, actually. And so Paul is, is now making his case for not only his apostleship, but his apostleship over these particular people, because he's the one who first brought the gospel to them, and they've had a bumpy relationship, and, but they've rejected his authority over them in favor of these hooper apostoloi, the super apostles, and, and, and it's because, it seems, that, that when Saul writes them, Paul writes them letters, he is strong and vibrant, and yet when he was among them, their perception was that, that he was not as, as uh, strong as he was, uh, as he is in his letters. Because he has to rebuke them in the letters. And, he, and he's already told them the point of this is that I don't have to be this way when I'm among you. But you want somebody who's powerful and eloquent, and he's argued with them from the beginning of this thing, from the beginning of the first letter to the Corinthians, that n how many of you were philosophers or wise or leaders or rich or debaters of the age? Yeah, yeah, none of you. Uh -uh, no. But what you like is somebody who comes up and makes a fancy performance among you. You, you, you like that sort of uh, eloquence, and, and you like the way that, that somebody comes up and commands before you. Whether they're teaching you truth or not, it's a completely different matter. You just like the presentation.
And so he's now making his case for his own apostleship, and he does it in a way that nobody would make their apostleship um, manifest to people today and, and claim the right to be an apostle. What he says, his constant message in, in this, beginning in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians and running through the end of this chapter, is, is that, that I'm not going to boast of my strength the way they do. I'm not going to put myself on that pedestal, and I'm not, I'm not going to come out there, and, and you're not going to be impressed with the show that I put on. No, what I want you to be impressed about is my weakness, because in my weakness, God's made manifest. And that's the important thing. He said, I'm going to boast. Yes, I could boast is the way he's going to begin this. I could boast in a whole lot of things, but I'm not. I'm not going to boast in the things that make me strong, the things that would, that would tend to vindicate and validate me before you know I'm going to boast in other stuff. And so he's already talked about all the persecutions that he's gone through and the perseverance through those persecutions in the gospel, which is the real testimony, right, to the truth of the gospel, isn't prosperity, is perseverance through um, persecution. It's to say, I, I bet my life on this for good or ill, whichever I receive from this, I bet my life so completely on it that I will persevere through any persecution and difficulty that might be thrown my way. Not, you know, hey, I'm in, I'm in this for the, for the money kind of a thing. And so that, that's Paul's argument here. And, he, and so what he says is, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, <clears throat> what Paul's talking about is, is that he, he is taken up, whether, he, whether it's in the body or in the spirit, separate from the body, he doesn't know. But he knows that it was real. He knows that he was taken up into the heavenly councils. I mean, we can get into this whole thing about what's paradise, what's, what's the third heaven, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so Christians will talk about the possibility of three different layers of heaven. Jews will see seven, so will those in Islam. And, and so what happens in that third level, and what is paradise? Because Jesus speaks of paradise. Well, the Jewish understanding of what happens after uh, life is, is that initially the souls of the righteous will ascend to a place called paradise, which is similar to the Garden of Eden, but it's a much bigger place. The Garden of Eden on earth is sort of the, um, it, it's the prototype for, or, or it's the archetype for, for the Garden of Eden is, is the third level of heaven, which, which is called paradise. And so, but the souls of the righteous ascend there, so there's no sin in that place. And the souls of the unrighteous will go down to a place called Gehenna, where they, they're purged from their sins, where they can enter into paradise. Um, now, the, the righteous could include the, um, the Gentiles as well, but not at the same level. Even in paradise, there's a, there's a division between the Jews and the, Gent and the Gentiles. Uh, what the Gentiles can see is less than what the Jews can see there. This is the Jewish conception. This is, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is a definitive statement of what it looks like. I'm telling you what Jews believe. So what they believe is, is that, that this is essentially the place where Jesus is talking about when he says, in my Father's house there are many mansions, because that's exactly, or many rooms, whichever way you want to translate it, that's exactly what they see here in this third level of heaven is that's where these, these sort of temporary abodes are until the end of time. These are temporary abodes for the righteous, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. Like I said, the, the Jewish uh, layer of this is higher than, in some ways, the, the Gentile thing. But nonetheless, there's a place there for them.
because they continue, the Jews continue to be priests to, the, to God even in that place. So it, it's a place that Jesus talked about when he talked about those building those rooms. I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. There are many rooms. This is what, what the Jews would say that he's talking about. And when he says he's go, they go to paradise, it's a temporary place prior to the end of times and the final resolution of all things. And so that, that's what Paul's saying is that I was taken to this place and it was taken up into the heavenly councils, which means that he has ascended mystically into a place where he can know things, but that he can't, that he can't reveal. And it's largely because he, uh, human beings lack the ability to explain those things. That you can see them and you can experience them, but you can't speak of them. Because it's not possible. We don't have the capacity to speak of that and convey the images and the ideas that, that are there. And Paul says, I was taken up to that place. Now, what the Jews believe is there were nine people ever who will ever go into that place called paradise of the third heaven. And so Paul says, I was there. He's making a high claim here. He's making a high claim in Judaism, much less anywhere else. But he's making a claim to have been ascended to this place. And he says, I don't know whether I was in the body when this happened or whether I was in the spirit when this happened. But I can't tell him, man can't utter these things. And he said, on behalf of this man, I'll boast. And he's clearly talking about himself. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should boast, I wouldn't be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from that, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. You know, so Paul's saying, you know, I was taken up this far and I have reason to believe that I'm special in the eyes of God, special among all men in the eyes of God. That's not what I'm going to talk about. And God had to give me something to humble me, to keep me from being that guy who, who sets himself above you. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about it, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. Now, that's an attitude that we as Christians need to take, and we need to take it even more now than we have for most of my lifetime, and I'm 60 years old. And so we're coming into a time and an era and a place in America where I think that we're going to have to deal with that, and we're going to have to have the same attitude as Paul to be content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. Stuff happens, life happens, and then we're going to see, I think, in other places that that we're going to need to have that attitude of Paul. I know that one of the, the only thing that sustained me in the early days of Will's injury were the were three words God is good you know it's easy to confess God's greatness that he is king over all things we did that the first day we prayed Lord he belonged to you before he belongs to us and so we give him back to you and that you would do with him as you will because we knew we would see him in the resurrection our faith in the resurrection was strong so we know that God is great we know that Will was a believer we knew that ultimately we would see him again but but the thing that we had to rely on day to day was a very simple three-word thing. God is good. And if you looked at my videos that I was doing every single day, that was the theme of those things because it was the only theme that I had, that God is good. I hung on to that belief and had to hang on to that belief in, in all that time because I didn't have anything else. The doctors were telling me there was nothing they could do. They told me that again and again, that it was just, it's out of our hands. 
there's nothing we can do in certain situations. And so they would try sometimes to do things, and, and then they would find out, well, we're doing the wrong thing here. Uh, it, it wasn't harmful, but it wasn't helpful. And so they were clinging to, I mean, they were just diving after whatever explanations or they didn't understand. And so all I knew that I understood was God is good. No matter what happened, God was good. If Will hadn't lived, God's good. It wouldn't have changed anything about my conception of God. And it was, it was the weakness that we experienced then that drew us closer and closer to God. And, and he became stronger and he became more and we became less. We were just messengers. And the messenger, message was God is good. God is good. He's great. He's able to heal him. But, but that, that's not up to me. I don't know what's good. God does. So whichever way it goes, it, it's good. I believed from the beginning that he was going to be healed. I didn't believe that anything would happen as quickly as we're seeing things happen right now. But... I believed in the message that God was good, and I never doubted that in all of that time. And that's the weakness that Paul's talking about. When you don't have the ability to do anything about your situation, fall back on what you know. And what you know then becomes a powerful message to you and to others. Because if in the midst of struggles and difficulties, your proclamation is God is good, then as long as you know that with all your heart, then you have proclaimed the gospel and you proclaimed it in a way where, where you're saying it's true to me in this moment of my need, in this hour of doubt. And, and so when you come to the gospel lesson to, today in, in Mark 6, they've gone to Jesus' hometown. So they're up in Nazareth, and his, uh, apostle, or his disciples are with him. And he's in the Sabbath, and he begins to teach on the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. And they said among themselves, listen to these three things they say and tell me what you think the conclusion is going to be. Where did this man get these things? Where's the wisdom? What's the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Aren't you, you're looking, hopefully you're looking and seeing, well, they're asking the right questions. They're moving towards a confession of Jesus as Messiah, right? So, and then they come back to these other things that, that these are the things we don't know. Where did the man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done to his hands? And then they come down to the things they know. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they fell back on the things they know, and they ignored completely the questions that they ask. So they, they, they see the evidence of their eyes, and they don't have answers to those questions. So what they're doing is they're now they're filling in and saying, well, these are the things that I know, and then they took offense at him because of the things they know. The things they didn't know, the questions that they have, were overridden completely by what they thought they did know. And they took offense. And Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Yeah, it's not a mighty work. When was the last time you saw that done? And he marveled because of their unbelief. And their unbelief was based in what they actually believed. And they weren't wrong, right? It's the son of Mary. He has brothers and he has sisters. So because of that, he can't be this. He can't be Messiah because we know these things. But we, we still are astonished at what he's doing and saying. We're not sure what to make of it. And so what we make of it is what we know. No, 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 no. He's a carpenter. Isn't this the carpenter? But you ask the right questions and you came to the wrong conclusion because of what you did know 
So you put in abeyance all those things that would, would otherwise attest to Jesus as Messiah, and you walked away from him because you knew who he was. I and mean, it's like, you know, if you go um, back to your friends sometime, you, you, you're going to be the person that they knew back then, not the person you are now. And, and so sometimes it's a difficult walk in that because they knew, they knew you back then. It, it's sometimes easier <laughs> not to do that. Um, it, it's an interesting kind of a, a reality to watch that happen. But here, you know, Jesus it goes back and tries to show his people and tries to reveal things to them, and he does reveal things to them, but they reject his revelation because of what they know. And, and so he is rejected first, not in Jerusalem, but he's rejected first at home. And so we see that same thing happening in reverse of David, right? David's homeboys uh, in Judah are the ones who first embraced him and raised him up as king. And he was rejected by the other 11. Now Jesus goes home and he's rejected there and then goes about all the villages teaching. And then he called the 12 and he gave them authority and sent them out. They had authority over unclean spirits. And he said, don't take anything with you. Go like a pauper. Just, just go in weakness. Don't take no bread, no bag, no money. Don't take what we would take if we were going on a mission trip, which is like, you know, nine million pieces of luggage and all this other stuff. Um, you know, hey, they probably don't have good toilet paper over there. We need to take toilet paper with us. They probably don't, you know. And so you take the things that, that are you consider to be necessities. Jesus says, don't take any of that stuff with you. Just go. And go and begin to proclaim um, the kingdom has, has come near. And proclaim it in, in word and in deed. Heal the sick, the lame, all that. Do all those things. Cast out demons, do all that stuff. And, and it's an interesting thing that, that in the weakness that he sends them out in, they come back and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It, it's, it, there's a power that comes from that weakness, right? I mean, when we get to, to the place where we don't have any more strength, then, then God can take over. Because we tend to make too many plans and go in our own strength. I was talking to my brother-in-law yesterday about their church and how he, he said that his um, their pastor now has sort of taken on George Mueller, who was a, a, a wonderful Baptist um, man in England in the 19th century and started many orphanages there. Never sent out appeals for money. God just sent it. He just depended on the Lord. And it's this radical dependence on him that's really the important thing. We don't do this so that ultimately we can, we can be proclaimed as strong by other people. No, no, we do it for one simple reason, and this is what Paul's simple reason was. He said, I could brag about this man. I could brag about how much God loves me and how much God's blessed me and how much insight God's given me and how he took me up to the third heaven, but I'm not going to brag about that. I'm going to boast about the stuff that's my weakness because my intention here is to give glory to God. And so when is the ultimate moment of weakness in Jesus' life? It's on the cross, and that's when the glorification process begins. And so are we willing to do that? Are we willing to consider ourselves nothing and whether he might be everything? And that's the point of all of this. Don't worry about being rejected. Don't worry about being despised. You're in it for the long game, just like Jesus was in it for the long game. And so he persevered on the cross in that weakness, the perception of weakness. He was willing to allow himself to be perceived as weak and unable to come down from the cross in order that he might persevere for the long game, which is the salvation of the souls, even of those who are there mocking him and rejecting him. Because you don't know. That's the honest truth. You don't know that those who might mock you and reject you today over your Christian claims might be called brother tomorrow. So it's in that weakness that we make God's power manifest and we turn enemies into friends and brothers. Let's pray the 
colic for today. Oh God, you've taught us to keep all your commandments by loving you and our neighbor. Grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may be devoted to you with our whole heart and united to one another with pure affection through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.